Welcome to our podcast, Neurology Morning Commute, COVID-19 Vaccines and Disease Modifying Treatments for MS. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi Genzyme. In this podcast, Dr. Benjamin Greenberg and Dr. David Greenberg are back to discuss COVID-19 vaccines and their efficacy for patients on disease-modifying treatments for MS. They also discuss boosters and two treatments for COVID-19 that they say are a dramatic change for this patient population. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found by visiting morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash vaccine one You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Benjamin Greenberg is Professor of Neurology at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. And Dr. David Greenberg is a Professor of Internal Medicine also at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And yes, they are brothers. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Benjamin Greenberg will begin our discussion. Welcome everyone to our podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. David Greenberg, an infectious disease specialist who just happens to be my brother. My name is Dr. Benjamin Greenberg. I'm a neurologist, and we are both faculty at the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. We're happy to be with you today and the Projects and Knowledge Group bringing you an update about COVID-19 and disease-modifying treatments in multiple sclerosis. As a reminder, in our first podcast, we talked about the role of vaccination in multiple sclerosis, the impact of different disease-modifying therapies relative to vaccination efficacy. And while it was only just a couple months ago, it all predated the latest changes in COVID epidemiology and variants. And so we're back today to discuss updates. Before we get into that, I thought I'd share something fascinating. After our first podcast, we actually received uh, fan mail, which we were thrilled to get. And I just wanted to read one letter. Dear Doctors Greenberg, uh, I listened with interest to your podcast about COVID and multiple sclerosis. I particularly found Dr. Benjamin Greenberg's information clear and helpful. Dr. David Greenberg was good, but could work on presentation style. Signed, Lisa Greenberg, your mother. Uh, thanks, Mom. We, we appreciate it. And Dave, we'll see if take two goes better. So um, in the last podcast, I, I probably spoke too much at the beginning, so I thought I'd turn things over to you to get us all up to speed on what the updates around COVID are in general. What changed since the last time we spoke? Well, first, I can't believe that they're going to believe anything you have to say after you fake a note from our mother, but we're going to try to make up for that right now. I can't believe how much has happened in just a few months. Isn't it amazing? This has been a roller coaster ride. Omicron hit the scene and it just spread like a wildfire. It spread like wildfire, not just through our immunocompromised patient populations, um, but immunocompetent patients as well. And I'm sure uh, you personally know many people who had been um, being safe, doing all the right things for over two years, and yet um, this variant spread. Uh, very rapidly. As you know, the numbers peaked in our hospitals yet again. Uh, here in Texas, we're starting to go down finally after this surge of Omicron, but it really was a very busy couple of months. 
How did you do with your MS patients? Did you see many more cases than you had seen over the past six months? We did. We, we followed the general population. One of the things that struck us is we had a lot of our patients who had gone through their vaccinations, uh, yet still come down with the Omicron variant of COVID, albeit with relatively mild symptoms. And I, I think that matched what the general population was experiencing, but it definitely dealt a psychological blow to our population. One of the things that we get asked on a regular basis is, as the virus mutates, how should those mutations and, and how should those variants change the way we practice or the recommendations that we give? So for a general population perspective, what are the latest recommendations first relative to vaccinations? We, we hear the discussions of boosters, and I, I have to say there was a lot of confusion, I think, amongst the population and the media on when and whom should get a booster dose of a vaccination. So where do we stand with that for the general population? Yeah, I think um, the terminology will be changing. We're going to be moving from a uh, use of the word booster to what will ultimately be just a normal series of shots and a series of uh, three shots if you're an mRNA vaccine, and that'll just be part of the normal um, series. When we're going to shift using that terminology, uh, I don't know, uh, but clearly the data shows that what we're now calling a booster is really an important component of the vaccine series and will end up just being the general way we do things moving forward. So in the future, uh, when someone starts their brand new experience getting a COVID vaccination, it will probably be a series of three shots, if not more. But as of today, three shots, and that'll just be the routine way that we give the mRNA vaccines. It's interesting, clearly vaccination has been playing a critically important role through this pandemic. And even though Omicron surged and we we're seeing many, many cases, it's clear that those who were vaccinated were having much more mild disease than those who were unvaccinated. But this does bring up the point and the question about the relationship between vaccination and immunocompromised patients, specifically patients with MS. Have you learned anything new about the immune response in patients with MS and how they're faring with vaccination? We have, and it's important to note that the data suggests that a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis does not change either the efficacy or the safety of the vaccine uh, or the efficacy or safety of additional doses of the vaccine. So we tell all of our patients that they should follow the recommendations for the general population for getting vaccinated and getting boosted. What's different in our population has to do with the disease-modifying therapies that they use. And as hopefully our audience heard in the, the first version of this podcast, we spent a lot of time talking about the B-cell depleting therapies. And there are two FDA-approved B-cell depleting therapies for multiple sclerosis, oprilizumab and ofatumumab. And what's been known and proven even through the Omicron surge is that individuals who are currently being treated with those therapies have a lower response to the vaccine as measured by antibody production. So if I take a patient who's on oprilizumab or ofatumumab and I give them their mRNA vaccine series and I go to measure an anti-spike protein antibody response, they are either negative or have very low levels of the antibody. But 
what has come out in multiple papers now is recognition that the vaccine is still able to induce a T-cell response even when patients are on B-cell depleting therapies. So we are recommending to all of our patients, irregardless of their disease-modifying therapy, to not only get the base series, but as you mentioned, what's currently called a booster, but will ultimately be called the full series of mRNA vaccination. What we don't know yet is how well the T-cell response that they generate protects them or keeps them healthy. The early data suggests that they have lower morbidity and mortality if, been if they have been vaccinated, even if they didn't mount an antibody response. And so while it may not be fully protective, that T cell response that happens is helpful to our patients. Beyond the B cell depleting therapies, there are other drugs we use in multiple sclerosis that can impact the efficacy of vaccination. Again, not the safety, but the efficacy. The two that come to mind are alemtuzumab and cladribine. These are both immunosuppressants that can interfere with vaccine efficacy. And in general, we try to get people to vaccinate before they go on those medicines if they're making a change. If somebody has already been dosed with those medicines, we follow their antibody levels, we dose them with their vaccine, but we recognize that they may have a limited response to the vaccine. To date, our platform therapies, the glutyramer acetates and the interferons of the world, uh, continue not to interfere with vaccine efficacy or safety. So when it comes to multiple sclerosis, the recommendation we give is get vaccinated, get your booster, and depending on the disease-modifying therapy you're on, you may need to take extra precautions beyond the general vaccinated population. What's been interesting during the Omicron wave to us is while our vaccination recommendations have remained stable, we were now living in a world with a lot of therapeutic options for um, COVID-19. These were things we didn't have available. I'm curious if you could give us an update on the rapidly changing options we have for treating COVID-19 beyond the preventative vaccine strategy. Yeah, it's amazing what's happened on the therapeutic front just in a couple months. This just illustrates how rapidly the epidemic is moving and how rapidly our responses to the epidemic are moving. And, and this will tie in a little later to at the end when we talk about what is the future going to look like. There have been at least two fairly dramatic changes on the therapeutic front that impact all of our patients. Although we've had some monoclonal antibodies that have been used therapeutically during the epidemic, and, and again, I wanna reiterate None of these therapies should be a replacement for vaccination. Vaccination is the bedrock uh, upon which we take care of this pandemic. But the monoclonal antibodies clearly have been useful. Uh, there's one in particular um, that is now on the scene that I'd love to know what you think about in, in relationship to the patients you treat. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, it is a mouthful of a name. So uh, Tixagevimab and Silgavimab. Those are given in combination. This is a monoclonal antibody combination, but here's what's so interesting. It is used for what we call pre-exposure prophylaxis, which means preventing COVID-19 in certain patients who are 12 years of age or older. So unlike some of the other monoclonal antibodies where we might use them for early treatment to prevent severe disease, 
What makes this very interesting is this is a long-acting antibody formulation, and it is used in those who are not currently infected with SARS-CoV-2 virus. Now, individuals need to have a moderate or severely compromised immune system from a medical condition or taking immunosuppressive medications that would prevent them from mounting an immune response to the vaccine. This is a back-to-back -back intramuscular injection. And what's amazing is it's thought to give protection for up to six months where it has been studied. Now, what gets interesting is the medical conditions or treatments that put patients in the category where they could be candidates for this monoclonal antibody. And it's a fairly long list. And I think some of the conditions on this list might be applicable to the patients that we're talking about today. Now, there are some obvious ones like solid tumor and hematologic malignancies, uh, transplant patients, patients who get CAR T-cell therapies, but there's also a variety of patients depending on medications that they get. And included on that list would be things such as high-dose corticosteroids, um, alkylating agents, anti-metabolites, tumor necrosis factor blockers, um, or other B-cell depleting agents are on that list. So given that, and I'll, I'll get to the next therapeutic maybe in a moment, but let's just pause here. And given this list and given this long-acting antibody, how would you think about deploying this in the MS population? Yeah, it's a great question. The, the emergency use authorization for these monoclonal antibodies came in early December of 2021. We're now in uh, February of 2022. And I have to say our phones were ringing off the hook for a month after the emergency use authorization with your exact question. Uh, I'm a multiple sclerosis patient on drug X. Should I take these injections? And our answer for those patients who are either on B-cell depleting therapy or had been dosed with alemtuzumab um, was to yes, consider going on this therapy if you can get it. I'll be honest, early on, uh, we were limited in supplies to a very significant way such that uh, over a large minority, I should say, of our, our population were able to get access. But in general, if you can access it, if you are on a B-cell depleting therapy, we did say to our patients, it is worth getting uh, this agent. The trial, the PREVENT trial, which was the phase three randomized trial to show efficacy of these two monoclonal antibodies at preventing infection had very good data. And at least so far, I, I say it's preliminary data, suggests that the antibodies prevent infection with the Omicron variant as well as the Delta variant. So we continue to make this recommendation all the way through the Omicron surge. Now, if you had a new patient coming in now today who's going to be put on one of these agents, would you start that agent and then give this monoclonal antibody? Would you give them a monoclonal antibody and then initiate treatment? How are you going to think about deploying this? It's a great question. We definitely, as you stressed, and I have to reiterate, push everyone to get vaccinated and boosted. That is absolutely the, the way to go, because if somebody is adequately vaccinated prior to initiating a disease-modifying therapy, we do not feel as though they need the added protection of the pre-exposure prophylaxis because they've mounted an adequate response to the vaccination. However, sometimes in our world, we don't have the luxury of time to give somebody all the doses they want before starting a disease-modifying therapy. 
And so in that world, we would do the best we can, get the vaccine doses we could in, start the therapy and refer for this monoclonal antibody cocktail to prevent infection in this pre-exposure prophylaxis model. And if you anticipated shifting to one of these agents in a few months, they're not there yet, but you can see they're going in that direction. Is this something that you're going to build into your clinical workflow, just like you might give other vaccines or other um, therapies prior to using these agents? I think in the world we live in now with limited supplies, we are going to push heavily on the vaccination arm and measuring an adequate response to the vaccine. But if we don't have the time to do that, then yes, exactly what you're saying. This would be on our checklist for consideration. I'll ask you, though, when we bring this up with patients, um, we are often uh, met with the question of, well, I know that the emergency use authorization for that preventative came in, but just a few weeks later, there was the emergency use authorization for an antiviral, a pill I could take to treat the disease. I was just about to say, but wait, there's more. There's more. There is more. Um, Amazingly, we have probably our first true potent antiviral that can be used to treat SARS-CoV-2. This is a protease inhibitor. Again, um, it is a a mouthful uh, to pronounce, uh, nirmatrelvir and ritonavir in combination. These drugs, these protease inhibitors, are uh, a similar approach to other antivirals that we've had around for years uh, for treatment of other viruses, such as HIV, or protease inhibitors in hepatitis viruses. And so this is a similar um, but targeted therapy that has activity against this enzyme for SARS-CoV-2. As you mentioned, it um, achieved um, EUA status in December uh, based on a study called the EPIC-HR study. This is used and indicated for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID in patient 12 years of age and older who have some risk factor for developing worsening disease, of which there's a very long list. But among that list are patients who may be immunocompromised for whatever reason. And if you treat these patients early in the course of their symptoms, the trial showed a benefit both on hospitalization and mortality. Uh, I'll give you a sort of analogy that sometimes people think about. If we look at other viruses like influenza, uh, there are pills that we can get if someone gets uh, influenza. Are we headed down that direction with COVID? I'm sure people called you when this became approved. Where can I stock up on this antiviral? Because I want to start traveling the world again, and I want to have this in my pocket. So how have you dealt with that situation? I'm sure a number of uh, patients were calling trying to get access to this drug. Our biggest issue was our ability to get a pharmacy that was stocking it early on. And I I think we're still working on supplies nationwide. So unfortunately, what we have had to say to patients is we are only prescribing it for individuals who are actively infected. So we're not prescribing it to people to have in their kitchen cabinets to, um, to, to keep on hold because from a public health perspective, there really is a limited supply. But for those who um, were at high risk of either complications or hospitalization, if they did have mild to moderate symptoms and they called us, we were prescribing it, but asking the patient to call around to find pharmacies that actually had it in stock. 
What I foresee happening as we get months down the line and there is um, better access and availability of the dosing of this medication um, is that we will prescribe it to individuals who are on those higher risk disease modifying therapies or have comorbid conditions that put them at higher risk in order to prevent hospitalization or complications. Um, we did not see any unique issues relative to this medicine and our drugs, but I will point out that the combination um, of the drugs, the two, the ritonavir is there specifically to act as a strong cytochrome P450 inhibitor to boost the levels of the other antiviral agent. And I won't even try to pronounce it. I'll leave that to my infectious diseases brother. And so if patients are on drugs that affect the cytochrome P450 system, they need to discuss the dosing with their pharmacist. Um, and luckily, most of our agents do not involve the cytochrome P450 agent, but it is worth a conversation with pharmacy. So before we go back to what's the future going to look like, maybe we can just circle back and you can summarize how you are now thinking about using um, some of these new approaches in the vaccinated patient and when you would deploy this long-acting monoclonal, um, and we already touched upon uh, when you would use an antiviral, but how, how are you going to start using that in these patients depending on what uh, disease-modifying therapy they're on? So it's, it's that last point. So the, the summary table I would present is the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis does not change our recommendations for a patient compared to the general population. So it is only when they are on immunosuppressive disease-modifying therapies, B-cell depletion, alentuzumab, cladribine, and there is a gray area around some of the drugs known as the S1P agonists, where we don't have uh, equal amounts of data, but we tend to consider them mildly immunosuppressive. But if you're on those agents, then we definitely push vaccination and booster but particularly for the B-cell depleting therapies, we would offer pre-exposure prophylaxis with monoclonal antibodies and or a prescription for an antiviral if you were to become infected uh, with COVID-19. There is not a patient we have for whom we would withhold therapy for a certain reason. So we get asked sometimes, what if somebody has highly active disease or had had a relapse this year? Would we modify our recommendations to get vaccinated or be on these drugs? And the answer is no. Um, so while we tend not to dose people during an active relapse, once you're a few weeks, four weeks past any relapses, you go back to a place where we could dose you with any of these vaccines or medications as needed. One of the things that's happened even over the, the six weeks since it's been eight weeks since we've done the last podcast is the, rec the recognition that this virus keeps changing. And with a country that only has about 64 to 65% of the population vaccinated, we still have a large group of people who continually act as a potential reservoir for viral infection to high titers of virus, allowing for more mutations. And I've already heard about an Omicron uh, B2 variant. So I, I have to ask you, what, what's coming around the corner? Are we gonna see an end to this? Are we gonna just keep seeing more uh, variants? And should we already be planning a third podcast for May to talk about the Omicron B2 variant or not? Well, first, the way you behave, I may not want to participate in a third podcast, but we'll get to that in a moment. It saddens me to say that we don't have a crystal ball, 
but I do think that we are headed to a place where this will be more of an endemic virus as opposed to an epidemic, peaks and waves. I think after Omicron, actually what the data shows from, some, from variant to variant, from alpha to beta, beta to delta, delta to Omicron, the period of time between those peaks has been increasing and increasing. And so I think SARS will not go away. It'll probably be with us um, for the foreseeable future, but hopefully um, smoldering at low levels in communities throughout the world and having less of these dramatic peaks. So it's possible that we will be living in a world where SARS-CoV-2 is always with us. And that will necessitate a multi-pronged approach. Um, all these aspects from vaccination to antivirals to monoclonal antibodies, I think will be with us for the long haul. It may change how we deploy them and when we deploy them, but I think we're headed for this just being like other viruses that we see all the time. Well, thank you, David, for, for your knowledge, your insights, and your predictions. We appreciate everyone in the audience for listening. We hope well, you have found this useful. And, and mom, if you want to send more mail, wait, you she, absolutely can. She just texted. She said, Ben made it all up. He's out of the family trust. Well, that's good news for me. I think we can then uh, leave it there. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash vaccine one And be sure to look for all of our Morning Commute podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services. <laughs>